Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. I'm truly honored to be joined today by Mary O'Carroll, a true pioneer and pathfinder in the legal industry. Mary currently is Chief Community Officer at Ironclad, which is a leading contract lifecycle management program for innovative companies. She started her career in business development and consulting before joining Oric in a finance role. Her work soon transitioned into a legal operations role, a function that was practically non-existent in law firms at the time. Mary was later hired by Google, where she built and managed the operations of the legal department as the Director of Operations, Technology, and Strategy. While at the company, she co-founded the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium, which we know as CLOCK, which is a global community dedicated to transforming the business and practice of law. Mary continues her mission to drive change in the legal industry. She's a frequent public speaker and media contributor, and she hosts the Ironclad podcast, Pearls On, Gloves Off. In our wide-ranging conversation, Mary tells us about her unexpected entry into the legal field, the origin story of CLOCK, how generative AI may change legal ops, and what excites her about joining Ironclad. Thank you, Mary, for making the time. I enjoyed the conversation. I'm just delighted to be joined today by Mary O'Carroll, who is currently a Chief Community Officer at Ironclad, but has been one of the true pioneers and pathfinders in the legal industry for over a decade. Mary, thank you so much for making the time. I know you've got a hectic schedule and I appreciate you carving out a little bit of time to chat. Not at all. It's such an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, you are truly one of the original pioneers. So wonderful to be here chatting with you. Thank you. That's very, that's very kind. Let's start a little bit about your background. You come out of business school, you, you start in investment banking, you do some jobs in business development, business consulting. And then you make a turn, what would appear to be a turn, to go to work for Oric. What was it that caused you to take a leap into a law firm environment? You know, it was really by chance. I wasn't looking to join a law firm. I had a lot of friends who were lawyers, but couldn't possibly name, you know, even five law firms off the top of my head at the time and really didn't know much about what lawyers did day to day. As you said, I had a business background and I was doing uh, consulting was sort of my last gig before I went into the legal ops field and was just tired of flying around and traveling so much and thought, okay, well, let's see. It's a tough gig, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is tough. Um, And I was doing sort of international consulting as well. So I thought, what roles, you know, are here and are interesting? And I had a finance background. And so I had applied to Oric into really a finance role to start. And I got that job and it was very, very quickly after landing at Oric that my, my role transitioned to be more of an operations function, uh, where I started to report to the chief operating officer of the firm and helping with what is now known as profitability and pricing and sort of operations on the law firm side. This is, uh, oh, roughly 20 years ago, right? Where you started? Uh, yeah. Has it been that long already? <laughs> I think it has. Give or, give, give or take. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Legal operations was not a thing at that point, but it sounds like that's sort of what you were doing. Yeah, it definitely was not a thing. I don't think that term existed back then. And at the law firm, yeah, I was, like I said, my title was really about profitability and helping to run the business side of the law firm better. And that included everything from helping to price and staff matters, look at lateral acquisitions and hires, 
consulted a bit on expansion opportunities, whether it was M&A or whether it was, like I said, lateral hires or office international expansion, did some work on partner comp, associate comp, bill rate modeling. But really, I mean, all, all sort of aspects of running the operations and profitability and finances of the business side of a law firm. You had a more traditional business background and you say you, you knew lawyers, but didn't really know what they did. <laughs> what uh, what surprised you most uh, when you went to work for a law firm? Oh, gosh, I, it was really my first week there. So like I said, I started on the finance side. So I reported to the CFO and we were in the heart of budget season. If I remember, I think I started in October. And I was looking at the budget and seeing that the revenues were going up and it was being driven by an increase in bill rates. And I'm telling you, this was my first, you know, sort of entry into the law firm world. And I thought, why, you know, how do we justify this to our clients? We just, we're just going to raise our oh, rates. Oh, the question for the ages. <laughs> yes. And coming from the outside, it really was a bizarre sort of thing. And then, and then looking at, you know, associate compensation and the bonuses based on the number of hours and the billing rate model. And I thought our incentives and how we run this business is completely misaligned with the client. You know, does anybody else see this? Am I taking crazy pills? And every, that's, that, that, they told me that's, that's how it works. That's how every other firm is run. We all run it the same way. We all increase bill rates at the same time. It's, it's how it's done. And that really was my early sort of eye-opening experience to realize, okay, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to fix what to me felt like was very broken in an industry. You know, it, it's so interesting to hear your, your experience because I sort of saw it the same way at almost the same point in time. Has it surprised you how it's better now, but it's not fixed? Has it surprised you how resilient or resistant the legal profession is to what seem like common sense changes? We'll, we'll come back to work here in a minute, but um, so I apologize for going down a tangent. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. And, you know, many of us who've been in this field for a long time watching and waiting and saying, you know, the change is coming, the change is coming and we can Bill feel it. Bill Blower's dead. Yes. Yeah. It was 20 years later, we're having those same conversations. And I do think there's a lot more pressure and a lot more conversations about how law firms are going to innovate and change. But you're right. You know, fundamentally, they look very much the same. They operate very much the same as they did 20 years ago and 20 years before that. And does it surprise me that this model is so resilient? Also, yes and no. You know, there are a lot of external pressures and even the clients have been putting pressure on, but it's a model that has worked for a very, very long time and is very profitable. And, I, you know, I, I, I don't know that it's going to change very quickly, even from now. I guess that's sort of the pessimistic view. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll we'll come back to that. You moved to Google after about five years at Oric. What were the key experiences and 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 learnings that you had at Oric that enabled you to start off strong at Google? Yeah, great question. I loved my experience at Oric so much so that I actually told Google twice when they came to recruit me that I wasn't interested in talking, and that's because Oric was and continues to be. A very innovative law firm, really willing to push the envelope and try new things. You know, they opened the Global Operations Center in Wheeling, West Virginia, when I was there, and a lot of just talk about how we can incentivize and build differently. Well, they've had a string of really innovative leaders, Ralph, absolutely, Mitch, and Mitch, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and I think that's part of it's ingrained in the culture there, and I think that's a big sort of lesson that I took away 
from my time at Oric that, of course, walking into a place like Google, which is very innovative, very willing to try new things, it was helpful. And I got to Google thinking, okay, it's going to be a lot of the same thing. It's running operations for a law firm within a organization or within a legal department. And at the time, there were 200 people in the legal department. So it was almost like a small law firm um, or even big, depending on how you look at it. Right. <laughs> uh, but I was really surprised to find how different operations was for legal on the in-house side versus the law firm side, the amount of data or lack of data that we had, the different challenges, the different questions, you know, from being a revenue generator to moving into being a cost center and all the pressures that come along with that. So it was very eye-opening. And what was very helpful for me is having worked at a law firm and knowing how the budgets work and the billing works and how the matters are organized. I came in with a really good understanding of what my first task was, which was to sort of get our hands on outside counsel spending. That was a world that I was very comfortable and familiar with and knew what levers we could pull on. I've heard you talk before. Maybe you could just share some of your, your thoughts. One of the challenges you had at Google, one of, one of the opportunities, one of the cool things I would say, was that you were scaling the legal operations function and scaling the legal department. You said from 200, I've forgotten now what it ultimately grew to, some multiple of that. And you, yes, you, sure. you, you grew and built one of the best legal operations functions in the world at Google. What was that experience like for you? You know, we were really making it up as we went along because even then I started at Google in 2008, the height of the Great Recession. And there was no playbook. You know, there weren't, still wasn't a lot of other people doing legal operations at the time, or at least no one that I knew until sort of the birth of clock. But the legal department, like I said, was 200 people. It grew ultimately in the 13 years that I was there to over 1,500 people. The legal ops team eventually scaled to over 60 people supporting that department. And it grew just organically. You know, we started with outside counsel management. Once we sort of got that under control, realized, okay, we need some uh, metrics, we need dashboards. And to do that, we need systems and tools. So we sort of expanded into legal technology. Then we realized we needed some self-service and knowledge management. Then we had data and we wanted data analytics. So we expanded into that. Eventually, we were doing much more strategic work and we needed program managers to run cross-functional initiatives that were being driven from the legal department. And so that created yet another team. So the scope of the role and the scope of my department really grew organically over time based on the needs of the department. And we were scaling very, very quickly. You know, we doubled, I think, every year in the first initial years that I was there as a legal department. And of course, trying to put structure and process and procedures in place while we were growing that quickly uh, was definitely a challenge, but we needed it sort of more than ever. And of course, Google was growing dramatically as well. You weren't just growing the, the legal function. You mentioned moving into being a cost center. You're creating a function, perhaps not out of whole cloth, but as you said, there wasn't anything called legal operations at the time. You were inventing it. And you, you had the, the luxury of being in a very inventive company and a very innovative company. Did anybody say, ever stop you and go, excuse me, what's going on here? What, what's, ha what's happening? Uh, a, a lot. And there was a, and there, a lot then and it continues to be now, even in the field, you know, what is this field and what is it exactly that you all do? And for me, when I came in, very little job description, just we're growing like crazy. We're scaling. We need to put things in place. And 
figure out what's broken and what can be fixed and go do it. So that's really how it worked. You know, I started talking to the leadership team about what was going well, what were they not being able to spend time on that they wanted to get to, what was taking a lot of time that they didn't want to spend time on. And then asking a lot of like, why questions? Why do we do it this way? Why why has it always been this way? And if people just said, I don't know, you know, like putting some reasons and getting to the real root cause of the problems that we were trying to solve and then trying to put processes, people, structure, systems, tools, whatever it was in place to try to do better. So while you're at Google, you also were one of the co-founders of Clock, which is just one of the most amazing stories that I think the profession has seen in a long time. I, I've been on record for many years saying one of the most important drivers of changing the profession is the legal ops profession. And a big driver of the legal ops profession is Clock. Tell us the origin story of Clock because it's it's fascinating to me. It was you and a group of like-minded rebels, I think you've described them as, <laughs> decide to go down a path. Tell me about that. Yeah. You know, there there were definitely folks ahead of us on the East Coast who were in legal operations role, I say at the financial services companies, but because of the restrictions of the regulatory environment that they were in, they weren't able to collaborate and share as freely as some of us were on the West Coast. So there were, again, pockets of us here and there within tech companies in Silicon Valley. And we sort of all found each other back in 2010, I want to say. And got together very casually, just hoping maybe these were other people that had the same job, you know, and like we said, it was, it was kind of made up. None of us had real defined uh, scope of roles or job descriptions. And when we got together, it was such a cathartic moment of like, ah, I found people that understand the challenges that I'm dealing with, that the challenges and, and the best practices and the issues and why it's so hard and why are there no tech companies that do this? Why are there no solutions? Why is it so broken? And you, it was just almost very therapeutic just to find other people who spoke the same language and who were doing the same thing. So that group grew and grew and we all had fairly similar roles. Sometimes people were more focused on knowledge management, sometimes more focused on outside council management, but generally we were dealing with all the same issues. And that group continued to meet almost like a book club regularly over lunch in one of our conference rooms. And it was fun to get together and we'd meet new people and invite them in. And soon that group grew and grew until about uh, 2015, we realized we can't even fit into a conference room anymore. The WebEx, you know, that our good friends at Cisco, Steve Harmon had secured for us was too many people were on the line. We, we were just overflowing and we thought there's something here. There's more interest in this function. Let's turn it into a formal organization. So we launched Clock formally, I think on January 1st, 2016. And even then, at the time, we probably had like 40 members. It was mostly at large organizations. And we came together and we, we said, let's bring everyone physically together this year and have what would be called the Clock Institute in San Francisco. We got a hotel and did a conference. And we didn't have even a website or a domain or a bank account or anything. And we put together this event in 12 weeks with no marketing, no nothing. And by word of mouth and guerrilla marketing, we had 500 people show up. And that was sort of this moment that we realized everyone is trying to figure this out. Everybody wants to network and talk to each other and share ideas and best practices. 
And then it just snowballed from there. The group grew and grew. I think there's something like over 6,000 members across the globe now in every part of the world, every industry, every size of organization. So was just with a bunch of people last week who said, wow, I'm so surprised to hear companies like OpenAI, who hired a legal ops professional dedicated in role as their third or fourth legal hire. And, you know, my response was, no, we're seeing that all over the world now. In fact, we recommend that you hire this individual within the first five people on a legal team. And we're seeing that more because with Clock, you know, you had all these people now focused on efficiency and effectiveness and asking for the same things from law firms, law school, legal vendors, tech providers. And it created a market for all sorts of what law companies or alternative legal service providers now, flexible talent, technology, automation. And that market wouldn't have existed if there weren't people in-house really advocating for change and driving efficiency and effectiveness. So it's been just a tremendous journey, really fun to watch. But I really think we're still at the very beginnings. I could probably rattle off like 10 of the biggest companies in the world that don't have this function quite yet. Uh, so it's still... Well, that has, can't be possible. Yeah, no, it really is. It really is. We still have a long way to go. And so, you know, the road is wide open and it's, it's very exciting to be part of this. There's sort of two things as I've watched Clock over the years that have sort of not surprised me, but have just sort of flabbergasted me. One is just the sheer size of the growth that you allude to, the, the explosion of people. But the second one is the increasing sophistication of the profession itself. Back in 2015, those of us not that close to it would have thought, well, legal operations, other people arguing with us about our rates. And, they, <laughs> and now it's an incredibly sophisticated profession with technology, with staffing. It's, it's really integral to how you operate all of the business. Was that part of Clock's plan going into it to enhance all of these key skill areas? I think a lot of it happened, but a, yes, we were very conscious of as we tried to define as many of our, many people are, are familiar now with this clock wheel, right? The clock core 12, which are the things that are possibly within the scope of role of the legal ops function. And what we really wanted to do with clock was not just create a space for people to network and learn and share, but really advocate for the profession. And that meant bigger scope more prevalence at different types of companies around the world and earlier, and a higher level of sophistication in the role. So as you're saying, yes, it's not just about arguing about outside counsel bills anymore. It is much more strategic function, much more seated at the right hand of the CLO or general counsel. And, and that is one, I think, one of the missions of Clock. One of my personal missions as well is to get people into the leadership suite and at the leadership team table and as a peer to all the other deputies of the general counselor CLO. And that's really critical because especially now, now that the role has grown so much in prevalence, we're sort of at this impasse of where does this role go from here? Does it continue to move up? It's going to be my next question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and I think it's it's a really important thing for us to focus on because a large aspect of the role is certainly running the day-to-day -day operations, making sure the trains are running on time and being sort of, I guess, operational in nature, very tactical. But I think once that is in place, the maturity of the role needs to evolve into one that is much more strategic. So once you have, you stop the bleeding, so, so to speak, and you've got things under control, where does the department need to evolve into? How do you help the leadership suite of the 
company, of your organization, not just of the legal team? How do you help your clients, internal clients and stakeholders do their jobs better? How do we get legal out of the way when they don't need to be in the way? How do we get them involved at the right times when they do need to be in the way? What does the legal department of the future need to look like? What are the steps we need to take to get there? All those are things that I believe the legal ops function should be thinking about and filling for the GC and CLO. I want to come back to uh, Ironclad here in a minute, but I want to stay on this path for a moment because I know you've been fascinated by, you've talked about, you've written about generative AI and the implications of that technology. Does that cry out for even more sophistication from legal ops people and more strategic vision as you're talking about? I would think it would. Absolutely. And to me, I've often said the most exciting part about generative AI is just the mindset shift that we're seeing and the fact that conversations are happening about what can we do with this? How do we modernize? How do we disrupt the way that we've been always working and bringing that conversation to the table? Because we've been talking about technology for years in the legal world and you still get a lot of pushback of, oh, we don't need it. Everything that, you know, we're doing things just fine. It's not broken the way it is. And that mentality I think is starting to shift and whether it's intentional or not, or maybe just because we're getting a lot of pressure from CEOs and boards about how is legal using AI, that is accelerating the conversation. A lot of what legal ops does in a sophisticated way is right sourcing and thinking about where can I be using the right resources to match to the right work at different levels that are coming into my department. So where am I going to use my senior attorneys? Where am I going to use outside counsel? Where am I going to use junior attorneys, contracts managers, paralegals, flexible talent, outside services, technology? And now it's just yet another tool in our tool belt to say, where are we going to use AI? How does that change those questions that you were talking about in terms of the right people at the right place? Does it change the skill sets in-house counsel are looking for? Does it change the structure of the staffing? It hasn't yet, but I think it will. I think it will. You know, everyone's still dabbling. Everyone's still trying to figure it out. And having spoken to quite a large number of legal departments now, I think there is actual use of generative AI when it comes to litigation, when it comes to contracting, and certainly some chatbots here and there. But it's still experimental. It's still in pockets. It still hasn't like changed fundamentally the way people are working day to day. But I think that's coming. It's happening faster than any of us had ever anticipated. And so when that does start to happen, the way that we work will change. When the way that we work changes, it's going to change the mix of people and skill sets, certainly within legal departments, probably also within law firms. And then what are the implications for our law schools and how do we teach for the lawyers of tomorrow? All of this. Oh, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. You, you went there. <laughs> you and I are on the same <laughs> same mental track. Yeah. It's it's going to be so interesting on the law law school front because You talk about law firms being resistant to change, and certainly some are, some aren't. Law departments being resistant to change, some are, some aren't. Right. But experience would tell me the law schools are even more entrenched, and the way of teaching and developing people is so ingrained that it's going to be really a fascinating thing to watch over the next few years to see which ones change, how they change, and how that plays in their position in the market. That's exactly right. You know, and I'm curious with even the emergence of new roles that will be necessary, let's say project managers, data scientists, AI engineers, developers. When you think about how those roles will apply to legal and will be, in my view, probably embedded within law firms and legal departments, who's going to be training up for those? Are those graduates coming from law schools or are they going to be hired 
out of engineering schools and business schools. I don't know. That'll be a really interesting thing that kind of falls out. I don't know. Right now, they're really hard to find. Yeah. With those yeah. skill sets. It's, un- it's unbelievable. That's right. So let's, let's move back. So, so Google for 13 years and you, you, you step away from Google and you step down as president of Clock and you move to uh, Ironclad. Yes. Talk to me about that decision. I suspect you were in demand. You could have gone anywhere and you chose something very special. Yes. Um, I had watched Ironclad for many years with both my Google hat and my clock hat on. So part of clock is always scanning the environment, knowing what new tech providers are coming out and who's doing what. And I had met the founders of Ironclad pretty early on in their journey. And they stood out to me from my first meeting with them because of the vision that they had for contracting and digitizing it and how they were going to approach things in a way that was very different, at least from all the other tech providers that I had spoken to. So I kind of kept my eye on them. Over the years, they became more mature and a larger company and their product got to the level where they could sort of support an enterprise the size of a Google. So when we looked at them over and over, I kept thinking to myself, this is the one that's going to make it. Of all the legal tech companies, you know, Ironclad is going to be the Salesforce, the Workday, the Oracle SAP that just changes the way we work and is going to be an integral part of every legal department one day. And I thought, what an exciting company, what great leadership they have, but didn't really think much kind of beyond that from watching from the outside. And I never thought about joining a legal tech company because my passion is really legal operations and modernization. And I didn't think, what was I going to do legal operations within a tech company? Probably not. And when I give a lot of credit to Jason Baymake, who's our CEO and co-founder, and he had approached me with this role of a community officer being part of the executive suite, but also still focusing on building out both a customer community and a broader community for Ironclad. And I just got so excited about that idea, the opportunity. I literally couldn't sleep that night because I had a pad of paper next to my bed and I was writing down all these ideas for what I thought we could do together. And at that moment, I knew it was the right move. And I also thought to myself, at the end of the day, I really believe that you know my purpose and my, what drives me is to try to transform the way the legal industry works. You know, we talked about how I walked into the law firm and I realized things were backwards, and I, it was almost like I couldn't unsee it since then, twenty some years ago now. <laughs> and I've been on this journey. I hear that. I, try, I tried to change it at the law firm. I tried to change it, you know, from being a big client to try to make things go our way. I tried to bring the industry together through clock and. You know, I think we've made a lot of strides in each of those journeys. And now I thought, well, this is a technology that I think is good enough to actually disrupt and have people want to work in it and wonder what else can I do in it. And we're at the point where I do think tech can drive change and be an enabler of change rather than something we have to beat people over the head with, like, please try this, please, please use this technology. People want it now. And I saw that this was kind of the time, this was the company, and this was the right role. And it all just came together uh, magically. And it's been a really, really fun journey since I started here. I want to follow up on that point, but let me move back to the people really wanting and technology driving change. What's been so interesting to me is that ChatGPT is is a consumer product at the end of the day, but it's it's shifted mindsets everywhere. And, and what I've seen, and I'm curious as to whether you've had the same experience, sounds like you have, is that you get people very excited about what they think generative AI can do, which oftentimes you don't need generative AI to do it. If you've got the right. tools you've already had that you've been right. trying to convince them to use 
for years document automation, for example. Yes. But they get very excited about it as a solution and it and it allows, it is certainly allowing us to use our full tech deck to solve problems that before we couldn't get anybody interested in. And generative AI on top of that, of course. Are you seeing similar kinds of demands? Yes. And I think that's exactly right. Oftentimes, it's it's just like the art of the possible, right? If you've had your head down and you've been working the same way your whole life, and it's just like any other part of our life, if we've been doing something the same way and no one shows us what's possible or what we how we could be doing things differently, you don't think about it. And then someone shows you something, whether it's chat GPT and generative AI or ironclad or workflow automation, and you realize, oh my gosh, this is so much better than the way that I've been struggling to do this all these years, my life is going to be so much better if I do things that way. And when that happens, you start thinking, whoa, where else should I be using this? Oh, this is so great in this part of my life or this part of my work. Why are we not using it for this? Why are we not using it for that? And that's what I mean when I say tech starts to be a driver of change. When you have folks realize what it can do, that it's not threatening, that it's actually going to help them with their jobs, make them better lawyers, make their work-life balance better, make their professional satisfaction better because they're working on the stuff they want to work on. Suddenly you have them asking for more and let's let's use this more, let's get more tools, let's apply this to more use cases. And that starts to be where you start to see real change happen a lot faster. Uh, I know we're, we're about out of time. So let me ask one very unfair question, which is, okay, take me out three years, four years, five years. We're, we're seeing this change you're talking about. What does the profession look like? The big law profession I'm talking about. Law firms, legal departments, I'm not talking about, there's a whole A to J yeah. problem that we have. We could spend hours talking about it and, the, and the role technology plays in helping close that particular problem. But in terms of the world in which you and I live mostly, which is the world of corporate law, it's a better way of describing it. How do you see it changing over the next three to four to five years? I do think technology is going to become more and more of a staple in how we work and change the way the work looks day to day for attorneys and other parts of legal departments and law firms. And because of that, I do think it's going to affect the mix. The pyramid that we have, the pyramid structure, right, of a ton of associates or a lot of people supporting a small handful of partners, that is going to change because the work at the bottom of the pyramid starts to change. So perhaps you don't churn and burn people so much as you invest in that talent. There's more mentoring, more sort of apprenticeship models where you're training the individual associates to be the partners or the leaders of the future. I think data starts to get much more valuable and important. If you think about the power of generative AI to extract insights and information from large bodies of data or let's say contracts, which you've never had access to in the past. If you have a large organizations with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of executed agreements over time, it's a black box. Even if you wanted to hire bodies and bodies of humans, you know, at a low cost to comb through them and get the information out of them, it's just simply not possible. And now you have the ability to get to the inside of all that information very, very quickly and easily. And what does that mean? What does that surface? How does that then change the role of what the CLO, the GC, or lawyers have in an organization when you have access to that data, when you have access to insights. I think it is an opportunity for those individuals in legal to change the way that they're viewed in the company, be less reactive, be more proactive and strategic, and have your seat at the leadership team table changed because 
if you have access to data and insights and decision-making and you can surface opportunities about the business to your leadership team, that is going to start to change how you're viewed within the organization or even within the leadership team suite. So it's to me, I'm very optimistic. I think there's a lot of exciting things that could happen, but it's all going to be very dependent on mindset shifts and the willingness to step into these much more strategic and business focused roles. Absolutely. I uh, promise you that was the last question. I'm, I'm going to lie to you and ask you one more. <laughs> what gets you excited about Ironclad's role in driving this change and delivering results to the profession? You talked a little bit about it, but it sounds like you've got some cool stuff in the pipeline. What, what, what's got you excited about your company's mission? Yeah, well, I think, you know, for a long time, like I said, technology for legal or for the enterprise has been difficult to use, has been clunky. And now that there's an emergence of new technology like Ironclad, that is easy to use that you can walk up to and figure out and have sort of aha moments of, oh, this is really helpful. Let me see where else I can use it. That starts to be that driver of change. On the generative AI piece, I mean, this is one of the reasons I wanted to get into contracts and contracts technology. Contracts are the largest and most valuable body of information within any organization. And it's been locked away in the past. We haven't had access to get the data out and to make good use of it, at least not in a quick and easy way. And generative AI just put rocket fuel on what you're able to do and what information you're able to have come out of the system. To me, that's really exciting. Like I said, I think that starts to affect how lawyers and how legal leaders are viewed within an organization, because with that information, you can change the way that you're viewed and the way you're interacting with the rest of the business. So yeah, that's one of the reasons why I joined the company and i um, very excited about the space. It makes a mind shift change, right? From your contract base being a liability to, your, to becoming an asset to the organization. Yes. I mean, you think about it, everything, every dollar that comes in, all your sales, all your purchases, all your partnerships, all your hiring, everything is in there. So you can't have any business transactions without a contract. And it's the single source of truth and it's been locked away. Absolutely. Well, Mary, thank you so much for making time. I really appreciate it. It's been a wonderful conversation. You've been such an important figure in the profession for so many years, and I know you'll continue to be for a long time to come. Thank you for all your efforts, and thanks for your time today. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And likewise, you've been such a pioneer and someone that we've all looked up to for so long, and you continue to do the good work. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.